Let's read Matthew chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 38, read down to verse 50. We'll pray and we'll go over it together. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, so great to see uh, a hungry church. Lord, we know that there will be a day uh, when there will be a, a famine, uh, not a famine just of ordinary bread, but a famine for the word of God. And we thank you that today we sit here freely, simply opening up your word, trusting as it is, not the word of a man or a group of men, but truly the word of God. And we respect it as such, Lord, and we we humble ourselves before you today. We give you our minds. We give you our attention, our bodies, Lord. And we just ask that as you renew our minds, we would be transformed. Lord, there are so many questions and, and so many concerns that we have brought in with us. And I pray that as we get into your, your word, we turn our attention to you, that truly the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And uh, Father, open our eyes so that we can see wondrous things from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. There was an interesting quote. Now, I hope I'm going to start off assuming that you're paying attention, so you'll have to follow me for a second here. There are three types of people in the world. It's just a quote I like. Three types of people in this world. Those that can count and those that can't. Uh, somebody's awake. <laughs> All right, let's try that again. There are three types of people in the world. Those that can count and those that can't. That's 
two. All right. Husbands, uh, we'll get that explained by the wives on the way home. (laughs) I say that uh, really for no reason other than I like that quote. There are two types of people in the world. Those that want God and those that don't. And I've not been a pastor as long as many have been pastors. This is about eight years for me in this capacity. But I'm learning a lot in those eight years. And one of the things I'm learning is that there are two types of people in the world. Those that want God and seek God. And those that don't want God and avoid God. You see, those that want God will find their way to his presence. They will do what it takes. They will overcome tremendous obstacles. They will seek him. And just a few quotes, Deuteronomy chapter 4. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Jeremiah 29, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Second Chronicles 15, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. So over and over in the Old Testament, we see this same truth that those that seek God will find him. He's not hard to find. He's not hiding from you or trying to be mysterious to you. He's right there for you. And there are those that will take advantage of his presence and his offer and his um, searching out, seeking out those that are lost. You see, God is already seeking you. He came to do what? To seek and save that which was lost. He came to seek. Really, we talk about seeker-friendly church. We have a seeker-friendly God. He is the seeker. And he has sought us out. But then there are those that don't want God. And will always make excuses to avoid him. They will even neglect opportunities where he is easily found. And will make excuses. And, and, and again, I find that those that want God will do whatever it takes to be in his presence. They'll overcome tremendous obstacles. And you just have to look at the church around the world to see that that is true. Well, the Jews that Jesus is speaking of, this evil and adulterous generation, they are in the second category of those that don't want God and will make excuses to avoid him. And we'll talk about this. This is just by way of introduction. You see, God had come seeking these men, these religious leaders, these spiritual guys. And we've seen, we've seen the conflict grow as we've read through Matthew Jesus coming and not coming as he was and as they wanted him to come, as they expected him to come, and, and these, these conflicts that have arisen. And, and as Jesus was doing miracles and continuing to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt who he was, they would blame it and, and, and excuse it away and write it off as, as being something else. And just in the last time we were together, they, he cast out a demon from this guy who couldn't see and he couldn't speak and The demon left him, and now the guy was able to speak and see. And they said, he is being empowered by Satan to do this. He's in league with the devil. And they were in danger of if they hadn't committed what we call the unpardonable sin, the only unforgivable thing. Which is great to read as we we talked about that. Uh, In one sense, they were so bitter against God. They were so rejecting of God that not only was it personal to them, but they became 
anti-Jesus evangelists. They wanted others not to believe in God either. And that was what they were doing. And we recognize that, you know, the church has set up a lot of different sins as the unpardonable ones. You know, in some churches, divorce is the unpardonable sin. Or not wearing a suit is the unpardonable sin. Or having a glass of wine is the unpardonable sin. Having a beer. And every church seems to have its thing that that's the unpardonable sin. And here we learn, look, there's one unpardonable sin. And that is the ultimate and final rejection of the kingdom of God in your life. And that is what these religious leaders were doing. And that brings us down then to where we are in in verse 38. Some of these scribes or these experts in the law, experts in the word of God, they had studied it with a a fine tooth comb. And the Pharisees, the men that had very uh, highly ordered and organized and ceremonially religious lives, they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And I read that and I thought, well, golly, haven't they seen enough signs already? I mean, we just they just saw this demon cast out. They saw a paralytic man who was who walked and, and they've seen all kinds of people healed. And you think that that would be enough. And by the way, it was not unreasonable for them to ask this question. I don't think I mean, in the Old Testament, King Ahaz, he's worried about his nation being attacked by the Syrians and God actually tells Ahaz, look, ask for a sign. I'll give you, I'll prove. He says, you don't have to worry about the attack. They're not going to conquer you. Everything's going to be okay. You don't have to worry. And God says, I'll tell you what, you can even ask me for a sign. I'll prove it to you. I'll give you something now to prove that what I say is going to happen. A sort of like God's you know, signature sign is the root word in the word signature. That is is the proof that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, and it's authentic. And so God says, ask for a sign. Ahaz says, oh, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And God says, well, I'll give you a sign anyway. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And that was a sign that what God said, there's a virgin, she's going to give birth, and that's going to prove that what I said is going to come true. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah became sick. Prophet came to him and said, hey, Hezekiah, get your house in order. You're going to die. And Hezekiah wept and he prayed and God sent the prophet back to Hezekiah and said, tell Hezekiah he's going to have 15 more years to live. And so Hezekiah says to the prophet, how will I know what will be the sign that this is authentic, that this is really going to happen? And he says, well, you know, would you like the the shadow and the sundial to go forward 10 degrees or backward 10 degrees? Well, forward 10 degrees would be too easy. How about backward 10 degrees? And so that's the sign. The shadow on the sundial goes back 10 degrees. It's a, uh, it's a sign that what God said he's going to do, he's really going to do. Well, Jesus had given them a sign just then that the kingdom of God was upon them. He had cast out this demon. But I think they had explained that away, right? They, here's a sign. Boom, they explained it away. And that's kind of how people are that don't want to believe, isn't it? I mean, we would try, we would do, you and I would do anything. I mean, we're fishers of men. And and we would fish with our bare hands if we had to. You know, throw the pole away. I'm diving in and I'm grabbing fish to to get them. And we would, we try so hard to get people saved. And you recognize your weakness, don't you? That as much as we would like to flip that switch or turn that thing on, whatever it is inside a person, we just can't do it. If they're rejecting God, if they don't want the things of God. We can, we can plant, we can water, 
but God brings the increase. No matter what sign Jesus would give them, they wouldn't believe. They had already made up their mind. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe till this day you've made up your mind. You know, do you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? It's in the Gospel of Luke. There were two men. One's name was Lazarus, and he was a poor, sick beggar just sitting on some rich guy's front steps hoping for a handout. And then there was the rich guy who's unnamed. We don't know his name. But they have this thing in common. They both die. And when they die, Lazarus, the poor guy who in this world had nothing, he's being comforted. And the rich guy who had everything in this world, he's in torment. And he says, hey, can you just send Lazarus over here? I'm, I'm so hot. I'm so uncomfortable. Uh, I just a drop of water on my tongue, something to comfort me. And Abraham said, well, there's a divide, a great gulf between you, and no one can cross it. And so in hell, there will be a lot of would-be evangelists. Because once you're there, you realize how terrible it is. And, and this guy, this rich man, from that place of torment says, let me do this. Let me go back so I can warn my brothers about what's happening here. About, so that my brothers won't have to suffer the same thing. Let me at least go back and tell them. And Abraham says this, look, they have Moses and the prophets. They, they have the word of God. And if they won't believe that, neither will they believe if what? Even one rises from the dead. You see, the miracles are meaningless unless you actually believe the word of God. We think that, oh, if I, someone will say to you, oh, if I could only see, if I saw a miracle, then I'd believe. And then a miracle happens. I've talked to countless people that have experienced miracles in their lives. They'll say, I knew that day should have been my last day, but somehow there was a divine intervention and I didn't get creamed. I didn't, it didn't happen. I was spared divinely. Anybody in here have a situation like that? I've talked to countless people who have experienced that. And yet countless people who experience that still don't turn to God. They don't seek out the one who rescued them that day. Well, Jesus says, I'm not playing this game with you guys, because no matter what I give to you, you're not going to believe. So he says, an evil and adulterous generation or race of people, speaking of the Jews, seeks after or craves or wishes for a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, Jesus could have come at any time in history, and I think at any time in history, he would have come to an evil and adulterous generation. Uh, evil just means morally wicked. They, they, you know, here's a group of spiritual men that on one hand are, are washing their hands a certain way before they eat, but on the other hand, they're trying to kill Jesus. They're murderers, but their hands are cleaned a certain way, so that's okay. They were an evil generation, and the, when we use the word adulterous generation, um, we have a relationship with God. It's spoken of in terms of a marital relationship. And when uh, God's people are not content or satisfied with him and they go looking elsewhere, that's considered spiritual adultery. And so they've been cheating on God with other gods, other things that were more important. And he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For verse 40, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's this comparison Jesus make, makes between himself and Jonah. You guys remember who Jonah is, right? Jonah was that, you know, 
Old Testament prophet, the, uh, the reluctant prophet, some call him. He ran away from the will of God. He was sent to the Assyrians, the Ninevites. They were the capital of Assyria. And now if you know anything about the Assyrians, if you know your, your history, uh, they were bad people. I mean, they were, if, if the Assyrians were coming to a town near you, uh, you would commit suicide rather than to fall into their hands because they were brutal. They were brutal. So it, much, it would be preferable to just do yourself in than to uh, be subject to whatever torture they would subject you to. They had skulls piled at the gates of Nineveh and skins, human skins lining the walls. They were brutal people. And that's, God said, Jonah, I want you to go minister to them. Oh, gee, thanks, God, you know. Uh, church in Jamaica sounds better or somewhere like that. <clears throat> I'll rough it in Hawaii for you, Lord. But that's where Jonah sat. Now, the problem isn't that Jonah's scared. The problem isn't, is that Jonah doesn't like the, Syrian, the Assyrians. Jonah doesn't want them to be saved, and he knows God is merciful. And Jonah is afraid that God will do what God always does. When people cry out, uh, God will save them. And Jonah didn't want God to save these people. He wanted God to destroy these people. So that's what made Jonah reluctant. So Jonah disobeys God. He, he gets thrown off a ship, swallowed up by a great fish. Three days later, vomited out onto the beach. Can you imagine what Jonah looked like, vomited out onto the beach after a couple of days in the, the stomach acid of a whale or a great fish? His hair has been bleached. What hair is left has been bleached. He's got seaweed. You know, if you live by the beach, you kind of know that smell, that dead fish kind of smell. Well, that's how Jonah smelled as he went into Nineveh. And, and here's this guy who has been really resurrected. He was three days he, was, he disappeared, he had, he had gone into the belly of this great fish, and now, boom, out he comes, a new life, a new start. So really, Jonah, the sign of, of Jonah is the sign of a resurrected man, a resurrected man. And that's still the same sign, the, the sign, look, the sign that your friends need, the sign that your relatives need. Don't try to, you know, oh, Lord, if you'd only heal them, then they'd believe. Oh, Lord, if you'd only get them a job, if you'd only, you know, pour, open up the windows of heaven and pour out lots of money, then surely they'd get saved. Look, you tell your friends, this is the sign that God has given. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And there's the existence of the church. The disciples had scattered. They were scared. They Jesus had been killed. That was it. It was over. We thought he was a, you know, a prophet, but you know, they killed him. And, and that same group of guys, after they see Jesus alive, become radical evangelists. What can account for that change? 500 people see Jesus resurrected. It's an undisputable miracle. We just happen to live on this side of, of, of it historically. Others lived on that side of it historically. Some lived on both sides of it. They, they were there when it happened. But that is the sign. It is the hinge point of everything we believe. If Jesus is, did not rise from the dead, then we can pack it up, go home, and cut the grass, and, and sleep in, and all those other things that we would rather do Sunday mornings. If we're sitting here believing a lie. The resurrection, you tell people, you learn about the resurrection, tell people about the resurrection. Through the book of Acts, it is what's preached, the resurrection. And when Jesus, or when Paul talked about the resurrection, some believed and some didn't believe. This is the sign of 
the prophet Jonah. By the way, some of you say, well, Jonah, that's a good story. It's just a myth in the Old Testament. Well, evidently, Jesus believed it was true. So, the story of Jonah. Verse 41 says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. These Ninevites, these Gentiles, by the way, you'll see the contrast. Here is God coming to his own people, the Jews. The ones that should be most ready to accept him, most ready to recognize him. The one that, that they had the word of God. They had the prophets. They had the history. They had the whole deal. And God comes to them and they reject him. But here are all these people that weren't God's people originally. The Gentile, the non-Jewish nations, the Assyrians. And they repent. You see, when it comes time for the time of judgment, the Jews of Jesus' day are going to be, be called forward to the stand. And, and the Ninevites are going to come right beside them. And the Jews are going to say, well, well, well we, we did, how are we supposed to know? I mean, we didn't recognize him. We didn't understand. We didn't know. It's not our fault. You can't blame us. And the Ninevites will say, oh, yes, they can. Oh, yes, he can. You should have known. Because we knew. We repented when we heard Jonah preach. And look what he says next. And there's a greater than Jonah that is here. See, Jesus is a greater prophet than Jonah. All the Ninevites had was some fishy guy with seaweed in whatever hair was left and bleached out skin preaching judgment to them. Unwillingly, uncompassionately. Jesus is a much greater prophet. He was merciful. He came preaching salvation. He came willingly. Jonah was buried because of his disobedience. Jesus was buried because of his obedience. Jesus is compassionate on people. Jonah was unmerciful, uncompassionate. They had Jonah, that little, that, this, just Jonah, that's all they had. And when they heard him preach that judgment was coming, even the king of Nineveh repented. And they'll rise up in judgment because you say, well, some people, did they have opportunity? Was it, is it fair? I mean, God is always fair. Is it, when judgment time comes, there will be a lot of people, but, 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 making excuses. And people like the Ninevites who heard, if you're here today and you're hearing the word of God and we're telling you plainly and clearly, look, repent. It just means change direction. You're going in the wrong direction. You're moving away from God. You've been avoiding God and anything to do with God. And today you're hearing that God loves you and that Jesus Christ died to deal with the sin in your life and that all you have to do is confess that that's true. And, and repent, turn back to God, and he will wash you as white as snow. Completely and utterly forgiven, you will become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And if you're hearing that today, and you reject that, when, when we have so much opportunity, you see, people like the, the Ninevites will be there at, at judgment saying, hey, when we heard we, us wicked people who didn't, there was not a first church of Nineveh. And we heard the preaching and we repented. But not only that, the queen of, queen of the south or the queen of Sheba, she was, some say, Ethiopian from Ethiopia or Africa. 
she also will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was one of the greatest kings of Israel. He was extremely wealthy. He had a a throne that was made of ivory covered with gold. Extravagant. It was the heyday and the high time for the nation of Israel. I mean, they were uh, extremely prosperous under Solomon, thanks to David and the things that he had done. And, and Solomon wrote all those proverbs. He was very wise. She had heard about the wisdom of this guy. And she said, I've got to go see for myself. And so she loaded up her caravan and up she went to see Solomon. And when she saw, it was even more than she had expected. It was even greater than she'd been told. But she took the time to get in her chariot or whatever she got in and and go a great distance to see if it was true for herself. And sometimes we talk to people and, boy, you know, I meet people in the grocery store and there are people that have sat here where you guys are sitting right now and, you know, life happened. And, uh, you know, so they see me in the grocery store and somehow... They are immediately convicted, you know, and I try, I try very hard not to press people or make them feel guilty. They do that all on their own. So they just see me. Oh, uh, hey, pastor, we were going to come to church last week. Uh, I didn't ask that question, you know. Okay, you know, Uh, we really meant to be there, but, you know, well, well, next week we'll come. Don't tell me that. Don't, I'm tired of being lied to. I really am. Uh, Just don't say, just come. I have a friend, our family has a friend in, in New York, lives up in Selden, New York. His name is Richard. Um, Richard never miss, misses church on Sunday. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's all about church attendance, okay? But look, the church is the body of Christ, and we know Christ loves the body, and this is, the, this is our family. And so we gather together and worship God together. And so with that understood, Richard never misses a Sunday. Never misses a Sunday, as long as he can, he can help it. Now, the problem is Richard is a quadriplegic. He's paralyzed from the neck down. He gets out of his bed one day a week when his family helps him out. They put him in his power chair. Now, if you know someone who's a quadriplegic, don't call it an electric chair. They don't like that. It's a power chair. I learned that as a, as a therapist. It's a power chair. So he gets in his power chair, and he wheels himself to his church, where he is part of the ministry there. And he preached a sermon in his church on joy. Why I have joy. He'll be there. Time of judgment. For all those that said, well, Sunday's my only day to sleep in. Or, oh, it's just too far to church. Or whatever the excuses might be. And, and I remember a woman named Alice that came to this fellowship for a long time. She finally found a fellowship closer to where she works in Charlottesville. And she'd be usually right here in one of these front seats. And I'd watch her, and she'd sleep through most of the sermon. She absolutely just, she would come, sing, and then she'd go to sleep. She worked nights at the hospital. She worked evening shift. And so she'd get off work, and then she'd plow here so she could be here. And, and she'd say to me, I'm so sorry I fall asleep. I said, hey, I understand, but I think God honors that. I think God honors even the attempt to just not make excuses. And to just be where we need to be. And again, I say to you, those that want God. And it's not just, again, just about church. It's about anything to do with your spiritual life. Those that want it will make it happen at any cost. And we do so, we try everything to take away obstacles in people's lives. Oh, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do that. You know, guys that want to go on the men's retreat, they'll find the money. 
Really, they will. Now, some, again, have, have obstacles, financial obstacles, but the truth of the matter is we find the money for the things we really want, don't we? And we find the time for the things we really want, don't we? And so I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying these guys, oh, they're writing away everything that Jesus does. Oh, well, he doesn't mean, well, that was Satan doing that. Oh, he's doing this. Well, this is the reason. And whatever they can do to write it off, they're doing it. It's because they don't want God. They had their system. They were happy with their system. And that was final to them. So now he gives this interesting story that um, I'm not an expert in demon things or or things of that realm. uh, But in Luke, uh, verse 43 is connected Right to uh, back where we were in verse uh, 28, 29, 30 in chapter 12, where Jesus talks about a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and that, you know, if you want to conquer a strong man's house and plunder his goods, first you have to bind up the strong man. And now Luke connects that directly to this, whereas in Matthew's gospel, uh, there's a, a, a different thing being said, but they're, they're connected. Verse 43 says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, He goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. And you see, that's where Jesus is going with this. So shall it be the same. This is an example, an illustration of something that's true with this generation with the generation that Jesus is talking to, with these Jews he's speaking to, because they are rejecting him, things uh, will get worse for them. And we'll explain that as we go through. So he gives this example from the spirit world, which again, uh, we know it is there. We know it exists. We don't understand it completely. We don't have full light into that. But I understand this. Not everything we see is merely material or physical. And there are some these days that try to break everything down into just that all you are is a series of chemical reactions. That's like saying that Beethoven's fifth is just a series of musical notes. I mean, sure, in its lowest form it is, but somehow that music transcends the notes that play it. And you are more than just a series of chemical reactions that occur in in the, the biological brain. Experts in neurology still struggle to understand the mind. Where does the mind exist? How do individual cells in your body, 50,000 cells a day you lose or an hour or something like that, how do the new ones know what to be? Why don't you end up with like 17 eyes in your head because the new cells go, I'll be an eye. Okay, I'll be an eye too. And you get all these eyes. The new cells that replace the old cells, they know what to be. How do they know that? Who tells them? What controls these things? Where's the mind exist? There are spiritual things. There are spiritual truths. When unclean spirit goes out of a man, we don't know why he goes out. I'm assuming this connects back to the demon that was cast out by Jesus. He goes through dry places. He journeys through dry places seeking rest. He wants to come and inhabit a place. But, but he doesn't find any. So we see that spirits like to inhabit people. Verse 44, when he doesn't find a place, he says, I'm going to go back to the house from which I came. And he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then what's he do? He has a party. He brings seven spirits worse than himself 
and they all move in together. Now, interesting passage, isn't it? What I do know is this. The Jews had cleaned themselves up. They had gotten there. They had uh, put in ceremonies in place. They had put rules and orders and, and all of these rituals in place to clean up their acts. But they were still empty. They, on the, and some people come here and say, oh, I'm just going to go to church. I don't really want Jesus personally. I don't want to really invite him in to be the Lord of my life. But, you know, it's good wisdom and, and my marriage has been struggling or, you know, I've been struggling with anger. So I'll go to church. I'll get cleaned up. And then I'll be good. I'll go out on my own again. And a lot of people come with that, that attitude and that kind of thinking. A church is just a self-help group where I can, you know, make a little self-improvement and then we'll be good. Well, that could be problematic. Because if you find yourself here, hearing the word of God, we are sanctified by the truth. And so you'll hear the word of God and you'll hang around with a group of Jesus people who love him and who, are, uh, who, who uh, show forth the love of God. And it sort of changes you. You feel good. Hey, ooh, this is a good, this is a fun place. I like this. I'm, I'm hearing this word and it's good. But you still don't accept Jesus. So your house gets swept and cleaned up a little bit. You say, okay, thanks a lot. I'm good now. I'm back on my own. And I have seen people do that time and time again and it never goes well. It doesn't take long before those old habits come back and they're worse. Now again, we see that from the spiritual dimension, what is actually going on. There are a lot of folks that get into... Um, Casting out demons and all those things, you know, we're going we're gonna to cast out, we're going to bind up Satan, we're going to cast out demons. I want to have a, a casting in Jesus church. That's what we need. And that's the problem. They had rejected Jesus. They'd gotten cleaned up, but they'd rejected Jesus. And, and so that's what I'm about. I was like, let's cast Jesus in. That's, that's what I like. Because that space needs to be filled. Voids desire to be filled. And if you have that void where Jesus is supposed to be, you know, the Spirit of God will be with you, is with you and he will be in you. And if you don't invite Jesus to come in and fill that void, then something else or someone else will fill that void. Peter said it like this, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them but it has happened to them according to the true proverb this is kind of gross a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire both of those speak of cleanliness but not transformation see a dog barfs up what is what is foreign, what is no good, what is troubling. A dog, bleh, up it comes. But then what does that dog do? The dog's still a dog, so it goes right back to what was ugly and nasty that had, it had eaten. It returned to it. And the pig, same thing. Uh, we, get a, a, we do a lot of pig washing here uh, in the churches. It's just the way. That's what, hey, look. That's uh, what Peter said. I hear grumbling over there. Hogwashing. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Hogwashing. Uh-huh. A sow having washed. You clean that pig up, and where does she go? Right back to the mire. 
right back because there's not been a transformation. What you need, what I needed was not just to get cleaned up. I needed to be transformed, right? And that's verse 45, so it shall be with this wicked generation. You know, you cast a demon out of somebody, uh, uh, you, you see somebody get healed. Those are great things, but they still need the Lord. A physical healing is a wonderful thing to see, very encouraging. But if that person does not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, then they're, they're in possibly a worse. Now they're healthy to, to continue to go after their sin, right? Now they can get there faster. Verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. We don't know what they want to talk to him about. Did they want to tell him to chill out a little bit? You're causing a stir. I don't know. We, we don't have that. We know that evidently Jesus had brothers. There are, are some teachings that uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary, evidently there were brothers. So that would not be true. He answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, as a mom, as a family, I'm sure that probably was like, ooh, that kind of stings a little bit. You know, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're, what do you mean, who is your mother? <laughs> I changed your diapers, you know. <laughs> Just imagine that for me. Who is your mother? But, you know, Mary knows this kid is not a normal kid. I mean, she was there when he was born. She understands. He stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister, a sister my brother and sister and mother. Um, whoever do, so this is in direct contrast, again, to these Jews who... who knew the word of God, but they weren't doing the will of God. There's a lot of people that know the word of God. There's a lot of people that have Bible knowledge. They can quote chapter and verse, and they can wax wise about the things of God. But they're not doing, doing, doing the will of God. You look at their life, and they're kind of living differently. But they're this sort of the being able to quote verses and being able to you know, name chapters and have all this, it's sort of a cover. It's a cover for not really having a relationship of, with God which is one where he is Lord and, and doing, and you're doing the will of God. Now, final, final word here. These verses and verses like this, we read in the Bible about the household of faith, the household of God. And we recognize church is not a business, folks, because we live in a world, we live in a business world, we live in a materialistic world, and the church has adopted the principles of the world. And so in many places, in many ways, the church has become a business. The pastor is the CEO, the elders are the, the board, and then the people are the clientele. And, and now we're, we're, all we're worried about is now a re returning clientele. We want, we want to make sure the clients come back. We want repeat business because we need to show a profit at the end of the year. And you see how the church adopts that mindset. But reading these verses has radically changed my idea of church, radically changed how I saw people, how I see you and how you see me. We are brothers and sisters. Those of us that do the will of God, we're a family. So now when someone comes in for counseling, I'm not the counselor and that person the counselee. This is not a business relationship. This is maybe uh, a younger sister in Christ or, or maybe a daughter in Christ or, or a, a son in Christ or maybe a son and a daughter in Christ can't get along. 
And so I come as a father or an older brother and say, hey, you know, let, let's work this out. And it just changes the way we see everything. Changes the way how we judge whether or not we're succeeding or not. Have you ever found a family that was successful because they had a lot of kids? Is that the measure for success? More kids, more success as a family? Or, or could success maybe be measured by the extent of love in that family? Would that maybe, you know, I got one child, but there's a lot of love. So again, we have to really be careful about how we, we, uh, we look at the body of Christ. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, you know, whether it's Mary or Jesus' brothers, that's my family. And we are a spiritual family, period. Isn't that the truth? So we've got to look out for each other. And we've got to recognize that the true members of the family are those that do the will of God. Are you doing the will of God? Are you doing the will of God? You seek it. I mean, yeah, we fail. But that's that heart. You know, not like these Pharisees. Not like the religious folks. Let's pray. Father, just as, uh, as we hear your word, Lord, we just continue to learn and... and um, I pray for any here today that, uh, that are in the place of the Pharisee, even those that have been going to church for years and years and years, have learned all the right words and have worn all the right clothes, and yet continue to really avoid inviting you in. Lord, you said to the church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock will open to me, I will come in and, and suffer dying with you if anyone will open to me. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that uh, will hear those words and open and do more than, and than get cleaned up, Lord, but get transformed, I just pray they would respond to you today and stand with the Queen of Sheba and stand with the Ninevites who repented that you would be found by them. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a final song.